Michaela Corbett. And I'm Gabrielle Becerra-Mellet. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at Curtin University on Wajuk Noongar country. There's a lot we don't know about the COVID-19 pandemic, like the long-term sociological impact the disease will have on our generation. It'll probably take experts years to do their thing and analyse these consequences. But what if we told you hitting the dating scene could uncover some of the answers? Dating, love and sex tell us a lot about what makes people tick and are places where people are usually their truest selves. It's time to think of dating as more than just a social interaction, but as a reflection of how we're actually going right now. First up, has the pandemic affected our flirting game? What can we learn from the different ways people make moves? And what does it tell us about technology, gender roles and the art of human connection? Here's Emily Farquhar on who should be making the first move in today's dating culture. Who should make the first move? I think, yeah, no, it should be equal. I, I initiate or I wink or I look or wink. I stare. Ooh. Yeah, but I wouldn't be like, hey, like, how are you going? I wouldn't ask him out on a date. The guy, the guy, the guy. If they don't make the first move, they don't really want to. Whoever the fuck wants to, whoever's interested, just go for it. In the modern times when feminism and equality is all being pushed forward, unfortunately this is affecting the traditional way where men are no longer approaching females. And females, if they want the attention from the males, they have to do all the hard work. Annalise Travelloni from the University of Technology Sydney says things have changed in the dating culture. She says women who prefer to wait for guys to make the first move tend to miss out. I recently went down to a a surf shop to buy a surfboard um, and I was having great banter with the lovely male and I thought things were going great. I was in the shop for over an hour because I did really want to see this guy. I don't know if I bought the board because I wanted the board or if I bought the board because I wanted the guy. Dr Liam Lynch from Curtin University says there is more to just making the first move. The notion of mamilla pinatapi is the notion of a shared look between two people or two peoples. It's that both people are, you know, they're kind of like each other or they would think they would like to be with that person and maybe the other person feels the same way. But who's going to look first? Who's going to make the, the first move as such in terms of initiating something like that? He says meeting people online rather than at pubs and clubs is becoming a growing trend. Uh, people are communicating via the apps, you know, through some form of social media, but it isn't direct communication, say, in the traditional sense where people were actually standing or sitting beside each other in some social forum and talking to each other. Former police officer and surf online safe owner Paul Litherland says teens are great online but struggle to communicate in person. He says it's too easy to rehearse what you want to say online. It's easy just to pick up a device and go bang, 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 and it's to initiate a conversation and to respond. So um, once you're sitting in front of someone, you have to have a conversation, don't you? Clinical psychologist Juliet Lavelle says young people haven't had the same training in how to approach each other because they have grown up behind the safety of their screens. She says it's too easy just to send a hey or a picture. Any form of kind of technological or online communication tends to foster a more minimal communication approach and a lack of really actually trying to think about using your words to win someone over or get to know someone or portray yourself in a, in a certain light.
there's more expectation on the guy to make the move than the chick. But in saying that, I think it should be pretty even. If the chick's interested in the dude, it should be that way, vice versa. Girls just, I feel like they like to lead guys on. I feel like they like to let guys know that they think they're keen on them and then let them know after the guy responds to that that they're not keen on them. Relationships Australia, West Leadville branch manager and counsellor Fiona Bennett says making the first move has more to do with personality than gender. It's just a little bit more equal nowadays as far as how the male and female approach what they think they can do. Paul Litherland says people are drawn to using social media because of its ease and convenience. He says online dating services are like a shopping network where you can try before you buy. A lot of what's happening at the moment is just, okay, no, nah, I don't like her, I don't like him, or I don't like her, I don't like him, and then we flick through and, and we try and find someone who's that perfect match, which, of course, we know is not the real world, unfortunately. Relationships Australia counsellor Fiona Bennett says dating is never just about the hairstyle, clothing or makeup. She says online dating profiles can now be carefully constructed. And so then I think sometimes their self-image gets a little bit distorted in terms of how they think they want to be because they're also comparing with other ones that have been manipulated. Psychologist Juliet Lovell says she can't pinpoint who makes the first move more these days. I think that the distance and the lack of being face-to-face with dating apps makes it more likely that women will be able to make a first move, even if that's a swipe or a lie. If you really want it, you got to go get it yourself. So Gab, how do you think COVID has like impacted how we communicate and talk to each other? Um, face-to-face interaction and communication skills, from what I can see and from what I feel personally, has just declined so much. Um, I think it's had probably a pretty bad effect on our ability to communicate just because we're so used to the screens and we're relying on the screens these days. Um, and that translates into dating as well. I think that our dating interactions are probably much more online these days and much less natural face-to-face because of the amount of time we're spending on apps. Because I think as well, now we kind of have this like safety net of, you know, an online, like a screen that, you know, we can just like hide behind. And, you know, if we don't want to like talk to someone then and there, or if we don't know how to respond to someone, then we can just, you know, stew on it or you know we can go and ask our friends for like advice and chatting in real life it doesn't offer that same luxury i guess and then there's navigating dating apps like tinder or bumble it feels like there's so many unwritten rules of what to have or not to have in your bio connie maturana took a deep dive into the online dating world to find out what makes the best first impression We deal with first impressions on a daily basis, but with online dating apps like Tinder becoming the norm, we are beginning to deal with first impressions in a whole new way. Professor of Social Psychology Dr. Viren Swamy says, first impressions are important and that people manage their appearance to present their best side. Appearance does matter and that's true of offline dating as well. The first time you see someone, one of the first things you do is make a judgment about that individual based on their appearance. Now, the importance of appearance declines quite rapidly once you begin social interaction, once you start having a conversation with the individual, other things become much more important. Dr. Swamy says your photos are more important than any written information when forming a first impression. 
we have a nice voice, so people pay much more attention to that compared to any textual information you put up. However, having said that, the textual information can be an important source of information. They use the information they glean from an online dating site, your photo, but also the information that you give about yourself, and they use that to make a quick judgment the first time they meet you offline about whether that information is accurate. School of Attraction founder and dating coach Damien Dyke says, first impressions are critical and account for 80% of the battle. Coach Damien says the best way to make a good first impression is having high-quality photos that aren't grainy and having a good sense of humour. Make the person laugh. So if something that you've written in your profile or in your photo is a bit sort of playful and makes the person smile or laugh, that, that takes you a huge way. Personality, really, is what it's about. Coach Damien says the use of animals in your dating profile can also significantly help your chances of getting a match. It's different between men and women. Um, so for talking, like for women, it doesn't make a large difference. For men, yes. Uh, in other words, living cute animals really, really, like they really, really help getting match rate for guys. Um, as opposed to, say, dead animals like fish or, you know, things that have been hunted don't perform very well at all. But yes, living cute animals really help a lot. Including a dog in your Tinder selfie has become a popular choice for many people, particularly guys. A Facebook poll shows that 40% of people would swipe right on a profile that has a witty bio, and 20% would swipe right on a photo of a dog. Animal ecology professor Alan Beck says, When we see people with animals, we assume that their relationship between the two is good and is a reflection of the person. People perceive people in the company of animals more positively, with more favourable attributes. We observe others and assume that what they are doing is caused by their internal values and, and beliefs because we are less familiar with their personal experiences or what's going on in their life. Professor Beck says this is an example of fundamental attribution error as we assume that the animal likes the person and that the person is capable of caring and commitment. Animals may also uh, help us feel less anxious in their presence. People walking uh, with their dog experience more social contact and longer conversations than when walking alone. First impressions are without a doubt important in today's world, but it seems you can make it a good one if you do include that dog selfie. So Izzy, have you ever had a relationship that started from a dating app? I actually have. I found using dating apps during COVID to be a really good way to meet people. Obviously, we weren't able to, you know, like go out and socialize and meet people like we normally would have and like I normally would have. You know, lockdown, it could get pretty lonely and, you know, being able to like muster up and foster a romantic relationship or something that you know you're wanting to transform into a romantic relationship it was a really good thing to be able to do and you know it was also exciting to you know have kind of like an end goal when we got out of lockdown to be able to like meet that person and I actually had one um, experience where the guy we just like didn't click in real life but then a few weeks later, I had an experience where I really clicked with that guy and we ended up dating for quite a few months. So a little bit of a COVID lockdown romance that, you know, developed into a good thing. What about you, Gab? No, I actually haven't. But even so, it's definitely impossible to avoid apps in any relationship. It's a whole minefield to navigate. Like having a relationship that is communicated solely through Snapchat 
I would say is completely different to having one that is communicated through Facebook Messenger. I think when you're talking through text or Facebook, it's the real deal. And I think we've been talking a lot about how apps have made social interaction harder for us and how social media has made it easier for us to hide behind screens. But what about when social media actually makes it easier for a relationship to happen? What about long distance relationships? No, 100% because, you know, I know a lot of friends where they were doing long distance and, you know, when like borders closed and their partner was living over east or, you know, they were over east, but their partner was here, they couldn't see each other for months and months and months. And their only like option to continue that relationship was to take it purely online or, you know, like via FaceTime. But I don't know, it's just like really interesting as well to think about how the pandemic started some long distance relationships where you think, you know, would people still be meeting each other in this way? You know, for example, Tinder, they allowed you to change your like location. So, you know, if you felt like checking out some hotties that lived up north in WA, you could literally just like change your pin or you know if you wanted to go like international turn on tinder global you could go check out some parisian guys it's really you know the dating world during covid and even you know now it's really your oyster brianna redhead investigates some don't. I don't think they work. Yes and no. I can see how temptation would arise of people who are closer to you. Absence may make the heart grow fonder, but can long distance relationships truly stand the test of time? Married at first sight relationship expert Trisha Stratford says communication is imperative and establishing ground rules helps to create a mutual understanding between couples, which helps to prevent conflict. You have to sit down and you have to work out how are you going to do it? What are the guidelines? Like, let's say your partner lives in Perth and you're in Sydney and part of your job is to go out and wine and dine clients. That can cause a huge problem. So that's where your communication has to be very clear. But also you, you have to have agreed ground rules. Remember, ground rules are only ground rules if they're agreed. But despite how well couples communicate, Dr Stratford says having an end date is crucial. If it's still going on in two years, the percentages are more likely that it will fail. At two years or before two years, you have to decide that you're going to be together and how are you going to manage that. It's about uh, communication skills, but it's also about one partner not committing to a future. So you have to have an end date. Clinical psychologist David Indermore says being apart can actually benefit a person's state of mind. Strangely enough, sometimes those long-distance relationships can be better for a person's mental health than a you know, live-in because in some ways the relationship problems don't emerge until people start actually living together. He says the outcome of a long-distance relationship is very much in the hands of those involved. Every type of situation has to be looked at through the basics of how much commitment is there, how much certainty is there, how much effort is being put in, how much investment is being made in the relationship. And, you know, if both parties are are committed and investing in the relationship, it's likely to thrive. 
Against the Odds, New South Wales woman Vanessa Nicole tells the story of her long-distance whirlwind love nearly 30 years on. The school holidays, 84, 85, was when we got together. So he had a best friend whose auntie lived in Ballina, which is where I lived. So a group of mates all went up from Sydney to enjoy the holidays. So I literally met him coming through my register at Kmart. He came through my register and, you know, I was very attracted to him. He said, oh, you know, what do you do when you finish work? Maybe I can catch up with you. I said, oh, well, I go to the beach after work. He goes, which beach? I said, oh, well, if you're interested, you can find me. And it seems luck was on her side. Went to this little beach at Ballina. It's a very small beach. Waited, hopefully, for him to turn up. Saw this guy riding this little hired bike back and forward across the bridge near where I was. Came down and we sat on the towel talking for about two and a half to three hours. I remember thinking, I'm just going to marry this guy one day. After exchanging letters for two years, Vanessa chose to follow her heart. So I arrived in Eddie Avenue at Central Station with nothing but my handbag, a small bag of clothes and a hundred bucks and Chris met me there and we drove around somewhere from Italy. Things were finally looking up, but after a year in Sydney and 700 kilometres from home, she started to question her feelings. I got to the point where I didn't know whether I felt I was with him because I needed to be with him or did I want him in my life? I couldn't have the perspective of, is this just I'm just doing because we've been together and I've given up so much I feel I should be with him? Does he really make my heart sore? Because you get into that complacency. What's the distance? What made it interesting and exciting? Like, and now I'm living here. In the end, it didn't take long for Vanessa to realise what her heart desired. So I booked a bus and at that point Chris and I did not know if I'd be back because I'd put down for unis all around. Chris was always good, he never really said anything. He said, well, you know that I'm here and I want you with me, but I, you know, don't know what to say. And I got on the bus and by the time my bus got to Hornsby, and this was, might have been 10, 8, 10 p.m. or something, I was sobbing, sobbing to the point where the people on the bus made the bus driver stop to check that I was okay. I said, no, no, I'm okay, it's just I'm leaving the love of my life. She says the risk of losing her partner made her realise her true feelings. Like, it was that trip when I knew, what, what am I doing? This is the man I want to be with. This is who I, you know, why am I doing this? But I needed that because I hadn't had that moment. So I needed to sort of see that I was about to lose something to see that I didn't want to lose it. What about you, Izzy? Have you ever ventured the world for love? I never have ventured the world for love. And to be honest, the prospect of doing that has kind of freaked me out now seeing like the ramifications and the consequences that a global pandemic can have on relationships. Yeah, I think I'd have to be already in a serious relationship or really committed to someone before I decided to go long distance. I don't think I could ever start something long distance, Um, but then again, I guess you never really know. You can't pick who you fall in love with. So in one way, long distance could be quite exciting and it could be obviously a lot easier now than it ever has been. No, completely, because I kind of feel like, you know, a lot of apps like Tinder, even, you know, like Google Hangouts, Zoom, it's really made it easier for us to foster those relationships from a distance. But what you said actually about, you know, like never say never, you never know what's going to happen. I guess the pandemic has kind of shown us how things can just change in like an instance and you can never predict what's going to happen. Let's take a step back for a minute and think back to when we first learned about dating and more importantly about sex. Is there ever a right way to teach about sex? 
Whatever it is, it's probably not through a milkshake ad. I feel like we all have memories of a birds and the bees chat with mum or dad, and maybe even a vague recollection of putting a condom on a banana in sex ed. It does lend the question though, what's the best way to teach a young person about sex and consent? And who bears the onus to teach it? Here's Darina Zadvierna with more. Do you remember your first sex education class? Was it any good? Yo, I don't think we should talk about this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? But that's a part of life. Sexologist Laurel Mayberry thinks many school sex education systems are not keeping up with the times and failing to provide young teens with info they want and need. What they want is open and frank discussions about relationships. They don't just want biology. They really want more attitudes, values, stuff and a chance to ask the tricky question. Mackenzie has just graduated from high school and says... Aside from labelling biology worksheets, her school didn't cover sex in too much depth. I just don't think it was really discussed to the level that it should have been. It was mainly in like year 7 to year 9 and then wasn't really brought up again. She says topics like porn and masturbation were completely left out of the curriculum and something she learned about from friends. It was a topic like, you know, when you're younger, wouldn't necessarily bring it up with my parents or with the school or anything. So, like, even if were to have, like, a sex ed class when I was younger, it would be something that you would giggle about, not actually, like, ask things that you were curious about. To activist and Keystone Coalition for Advancing Sex Education director Casey Miller says poor sex education is a serious and global issue. Sex is everywhere in a society. It's everywhere. It permeates every facet of our society. Yet in the classroom, what exactly are we doing to teach students to navigate this? And the truth is, we aren't. Catherine Shine is a journalism lecturer and a mother of two. She's concerned about her daughters coming across online pornography. It's concerning to me that young people learn about sex through pornography because it's not actually what sex is like. And so I think it's really concerning that boys think that's what you know, though what I see in pornography is what women want. And I think it's concerning that women think they have to be like that. Dr. Shine says it's important for parents to step in and discuss topics that often aren't covered in school. You do need to have conversations with them about like um, pornography and how it's not presenting a realistic picture. I think it's really important to be talking about things like intimacy, that they connect those things, you know what I mean? Like, that they don't see sex as something separate from intimacy. Sexology lecturer Dr Mayberry says curriculum resources are not the issue. We have so much amazing information, everything from pornography, relationships, gender, questioning sexuality, but the issue is that teachers don't necessarily feel comfortable to teach it. But teachers don't necessarily have to do the dirty work. Director of Youth Education Peers Program, Lorna Graham, says her team of young educators can come to you. So we have 15 young people um, that go out to youth centres or school groups or different services where young people are um, and support them around learning about sexuality and different sexual health um, and bloodborne virus um, issues. The WA-based programme is even designed to be minority group appropriate. It's really important to us that all of the work that we provide is quite inclusive, so of different abilities, sexualities, expressions and gender identities and also different cultures. Dr Mayberry says sex education should be as mandatory and comprehensive as maths. It's 
incredibly important that we give young people the information so they can stay healthy, make healthy choices and have respectful and consenting relationships. So Izzy, do you remember your first sex ed class? I think the real sex ed came in about year nine or 10. And I remember the actual class really vividly because, you know, we learned about like contraception. I'm pretty sure, you know, like a banana and a condom both came out. But what I really remember was my teacher at the time saying, there's this thing called um, the morning after pill. And on my honeymoon, I just had like a bulk supply of it. And it was just, you know, a mental image. It was a lot. So I'll never really forget learning about contraception in that kind of environment. What about you, Gab? I definitely remember the period talk. I also remember the condom and the banana. Um, But to be honest, that's probably where it ends. I don't remember having any lessons about consent or even pleasure during sex. Um, I think that most of, apart from the health focus, most of my knowledge about sex came probably from friends um, and what I saw online and then just first-hand experiences. So I don't think the education system made a huge impact on my learning experience about sex and consent. I think also with the pandemic and with the fact that there's more online learning, more people are on social media than ever, I can just imagine that the way that adolescents are learning about sex and consent these days is more through their own devices than ever. And it's quite dangerous to think that something like porn could be educating our children on what sex and consent is. Not only does that set an unrealistic expectation for the roles of men and women during sex, but it also blurs the lines on consent and it's not a proper education and our education system should do better to to make sure that these lessons are are taught in a way that it's very clear cut and kids don't have to turn to, to other sources to get their knowledge from. And on that note, that story by Darina finishes our program. For more of the best stories in student journalism around Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. And don't forget, there's a new episode of Making a Difference every month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. I'm Isabella Corbett. And I'm Gabrielle Becerramella. Thanks for listening.